All right, so for those of you who've been paying attention to the news lately, um, Venezuela, ruled by Nicolas Maduro, who we have over here in the podcast, um, has been backed by the Chinese and Russian governments. Um, obviously, I'm poking fun at uh, my friend Nick, who's a member of the Wisdom Factory. He's our director of research. And uh, while Nicolas Maduro may be backed by China, Nicolas Flores over here has had a chance to go to China, um, which from what I've heard from him was a very interesting experience. And ladies and gentlemen, that is what we're going to be talking about today. Um, China obviously is a major player on the world stage with a rich culture and history. You know, that China is one of the countries that fascinates me the most um, for a variety of reasons. And right now I'm actually reading a book on China that Nicholas here gave me called The Dragon and the Foreign Devils. And it's talking about Chinese history and foreign policy and how their national image um, developed. But while normally I'm like sort of the China guy in the wisdom factory, because of Nick's experience overseas, um, I thought it'd be good to give him the floor and, and some time to talk about uh, what he saw and what he did over there. Because, you know, Nick, from what I've heard, you've, you've had some pretty interesting experiences. So, so maybe you, before we get into more specific questions, we could elaborate on that a little bit. Uh, yeah. Hey everyone. Yeah, I definitely had some interesting experiences. Some of them were, um, I'm going to say unique compared to, uh, kind of unexpected. Like, uh, I guess I can go with the more unexpected ones. Uh, the one I can remember off the top of my head, uh, I was at a art museum because one of my classes involved art that filled up my major. Fotsy Fotsy. Right. I could care less for that. Well, I, I did enjoy the class, but you know what? I mean, it was the only one that I could choose. Well, I mean, when you get to go to China, you take what exactly. you get, right? I mean, when China has one of the most fascinating cultures yeah. in the world. It's, it's kind of hard to be bored when you get the opportunity to learn exactly. about it. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, art was never really my forte to begin with. Uh, but anyway, I was with my professor, and uh, we both decided to get in the same taxi. And what happened was the taxi... He didn't move the car when we got in. He just stopped, looked at the rearview mirror in my direction. He looked at the rearview mirror that looked at me, and he had a smile on his face and a beam across on his face too. He points to me while looking at the prof at my professor to my right and tells him in Mandarin. And mind you, this is a forty-year-old taxi driver, a man. He goes. Is that a real person? That can't be a real person. He's too handsome. And uh, <laughs> this may seem a little weird, but here's some context to it. What happened in that situation was apparently the ideal image of what a beautiful or a handsome Chinese man is supposed to be is basically light-complected, had square jaw, square head, and a big head, a very big head with... If you had the extra bonus of glasses, which I have, it's seen as intellectual. Pale complected means that you're not working out in the fields, so you're seen as if you're in a higher status. Square jawed means that you're more manly or that you could take more damage. So that sort of thing. That was one of the more unique situations, I guess. So um, other experiences, it would be things that uh, there were times where I was somewhat uncomfortable rather or i saw some differences between what i saw in china versus what i saw in the united states 
And I guess we can touch up on them a little bit later, or would you like me to put more detail on those, mm -hmm. on that one specifically? Yeah, so I, I think a good um, starting question for some of the more specific stuff was, um, how did your trip affect um, your perceptions of China? Because in previous podcasts, especially when we've talked about great power politics, you know, there's a certain idea that um, we have about China, that they're nationalistic, that they're very pro-communist, that they hate the United States, um, that they're very proud of their civilization, that they're a very intellectual society. Mm -hmm. um, so, so by and large, I mean, maybe if you could elaborate on, on what, what perceptions were mm -hmm. confirmed and, and what perceptions maybe were dispelled. So, so some of the things that you saw in China that you expected to see, you know, things, things that kind of lined up with, with the version that you had in your head. But also some things that maybe surprised you, you know, some some things about Chinese culture that um, showed how inaccurate maybe some stereotypes are. Okay. Um, okay, I guess we can go with the nationalistic. Um, whether they're more nationalistic or not, in my opinion, it would be, uh, I would say yes, they're as nationalistic as Americans. However, it's not as noticeable or rather it's not as open. Like say if in your if you're in the United States and you came across a patriotic American or rather you saw them, it was very easy to spot them. They would always be waving the flag and saying, "I support the Second Amendment. I love the Second Amendment." They got flags which, in the back of their pickup truck exactly. and a gun rack and like you know I know what you mean, man, because like I've seen these kind of people. Yeah. And, and for me, because like, I'm I'm very pro gun hey, to some extent, yeah. I could even be these kind of people. Not to like the crazy extent, but like you know. I love America and I love yeah. the Second Amendment, but you can you can recognize them from a mile away, man. Yeah. Like when you see when I mean, you see an American who is a nationalist who like just believes in this country above all else, like you will know within the first five seconds of meeting them. You know, maybe even before you meet them. Like there was one time on Fourth of July, I saw a dude with American flag on the back of the pickup truck, exactly. and it's like it's glaringly obvious, and that the the nationalists in this country really love to just broadcast to the world how yeah. nationalist they are. And and how much they love the U.S. Yeah, and in some respects, I mean, well, not in some respects. I am like that too. I, I, I am. Very, <laughs> You're more I like that patriotic. than me. I, I say I'm more. I'm, I love my country. Yeah, I really do. I wouldn't really consider myself a nationalist because I, I do like nationalism. I think implies kind of um, it has a unconditional dark, it has a bad undertone. Well, it, it implies kind of an unconditional obedience. You know, like I do. Like I am a hawk in my foreign policy, so I, I like I have. One, one way I described myself to in the past one time on a phone interview for an organization was uh, as a, a diet nationalist. You know, I'm sort of a diet nationalist in the sense that, you know, I have some nationalist tendencies, but I think nationalism in general, you know, like there has a lot of, there's a lot of dangerous elements to it. Of course. And that uh, I don't, I don't like to fully embrace, like there's elements of my character and my beliefs that, that are nationalist, but I don't yeah. like to fully embrace nationalism because I, I feel like it leads us down a dangerous path. Mm -hmm. and it's important to be able to criticize one's country and to, you know, to, to recognize that there's other important things. Like for me as a, as a Catholic, God always comes first, even before the country. Uh, right. And, uh, for me, it's, uh, how do I put this? Even though I say I do kind of consider myself as a nationalist, rather, I'm closer akin to a patriot rather than a nationalist because I do love my country. Will I fight for my country? Of course I will. However, as I grew up, 
uh, and knowing more about my constitution naturally, uh, it's that, of course, yeah, of course I'm going to be a patriot. However, in the case that my government becomes tyrannical to the point where I can't practice the rights that the constitution specifically protects, or rather says that I have a right and obligation to protect, then I will... I, I would be willing to fight against my own government if it means that I can protect those rights. And I think I mean, I, it's simple yeah. as that. And I think you hit the nail on the head. And, and I think that's one of the reasons why my relationship with nationalism is so complicated. Because I would say in the context of the government, I'm more patriotic. But in the context of the American people, I'm more nationalistic. Mm-hmm. You know, that like I, I can and will, you know, uh, oppose the government on certain yeah. issues. And that, you know... Like we, we talk about this kind of stuff all the time with foreign policy, with immigration, that kind of stuff. There's a lot of things the government does that I don't like. But the only reason why I don't like it is because there's, you know, if the government becomes tyrannical, you know, not only is that something that I think is intrinsically bad, but specifically within the context of the American Constitution, when the government becomes tyrannical, it becomes an enemy of the American people. And I will do, I will do anything for the American people. In essence, the government that you were a patriot of has been taken over. Precisely, in and that, it becomes an enemy it's seen within. As a foreign power. Yeah, and that's why that's why our leaders, when they swear their oath of office, they say to protect the United States from all enemies, foreign and domestic, because the United States comprises of its people, and that unfortunately our government becomes a domestic enemy. And we've seen this many times. We've seen it with segregation. We've seen it with slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there've been many instances where the government has been a domestic enemy, and where it's oppressed its own people, and where sometimes wars were necessary. Um, you know, to to avoid that outcome. But that being right. said, you know, the main so, focus yeah. of this is on China. So, so how does yeah. nationalism in China manifest mm-hmm. itself? Particularly, how is it different from the U.S.? All right. Well, now that we brought out details of the American point of view, this is where it's also going to connect a little bit to the later point of communism and how that connects in. But we'll stick with the nationalism for now. Now. This is where it gets a little interesting, because what we said about Americans as being more patriotic rather than nationalistic, depending on who you talk to, but for the most part, patriotic in my opinion, uh, with China's, it's a little more interesting. For them, they're more nationalistic than they are patriotic. Mm -hmm. If they were patriotic, then they'd probably be closer to what the United States would be like, U.S. citizens would be like, waving their flag and, uh, mm, excuse me. Uh, protesting how great the country is, how boasting they are about it. Nationalism, on the other hand, uh, for them, it's more ingrained into their society. It's something that has been part of their society since as long as they could write it, as long as they could record it. It has always pretty much been a part of their history, and it became even more so in the last 100, 200 years. Um, And it's especially true in the last... Uh, with the la- with the current regime of the PRC, People's Republic of China, and it's especially under Xi Jinping, mm-hmm. uh, the current leader who took o- who took power in 2013 and is continuing on as of the time of this uh, recording. Uh, and one of the instances that I saw of nationalism was that, for instance, in some of the subway stations and at the university I was at, every you would see sections where there are posters where they talk about how in Chinese naturally I couldn't read it at the time 
but I was with professors that could. And what they said on there was basically how great China is. We must, you know, we must defeat our enemies no matter what they are and who they are. We got to defeat our enemies so that we can live on and that China will never be threatened ever again. It's something along those lines. And it's, in some respects, it's kind of the scars or rather revenge that they had towards uh, the past, especially during the century of humiliation. If any of you, if you don't know what that means, that basically means during the last days of when it was a monarchy and when it fell to, to corruption, foreign intervention by nations like Japan, Britain, the Russian Empire, the French, and the Germans, and the United States with their open door policy, which yeah. out of all the powers, America was the nicest of the bunch. Well, and I and the thing is with that is um, under to really appreciate the impact of that you have to understand um, Chinese civilization at a fundamental level because you know obviously with any country that's been colonized there's been some damage there's been some resentment you know that not only with European colonization but when you look at empires before them you know people who were colonized or uh, conquered by the Mongols by the Japanese that's one thing I mean I don't whatever our leftist friends may say. There, there were empires that were not white people and Europeans mm -hmm. and that, you know, with the exception of yeah. the British, they weren't even, you know, that the, the, the European ones were not even the biggest ones necessarily. That, that the Mongols were the largest land empire and the second largest empire ever and that the British were the only ones that were bigger. The British definitely were European, you know, so we're not, we're not necessarily, we're not discounting European colonialism, mm -hmm. like right. we definitely recognize that it was a part of history and that there's a lot of things yeah. that happened there that have some baggage with it. Um, that being said, I, I yeah. think there's a difference yeah. between saying something happened and saying there's exclusivity to it. That, that being said, th that there's some things that make China unique and that right. they've always been particularly sensitive and prone to seeking revenge when it comes to uh, being occupied yeah. by foreign yeah. powers. And, and the reason why, um, so this is something that's mentioned pretty early on in the book I'm reading, um, is the idea of the, the, the mandate of heaven in the middle kingdom, that mm -hmm. China has an ancient and deep-rooted belief that they have been ordained by divine forces to rule the world. You know, right. you, you have heaven on uh, above and then you have earth below and China in between. And that they, they believe that they are the superior culture, the superior civilization. Um, and to a lesser extent, you know, this is, a, this is a little bit more controversial within China, but to a lesser extent, even the master race. You know, there's, there's, there's a little bit of that going on too. And um, because of that, there's a level of pride that they have in their civilization that not all have. And that they, while all countries are going to view incursions upon their territory as against their national interests and against mm -hmm. the will of their people, China sort of happens another level on top of it in the sense that not only was this humiliating for China, that this was also something that was against the natural order and yep. that these other countries that colonized China have committed a sin against mm -hmm. heaven for which they should be eternally punished. Which is really unusual. Like, for some, like, you would, it's really. How do I put this? For those that don't necessarily know much about Chinese history or have a decent grasp of it through several fields, uh, it becomes very confusing or in some respects counterproductive to kind of think about this. Uh, but the mandate of heaven, in some respects, it kind of 
serve as a uh, detriment to them or a poison in a way. Because what the mandate of heaven did is gave them the concept that nothing could beat them. They are the pride of the world and any nation surrounding them were nothing more than barbarians or nations that should look up to the Chinese, give tribute to them because the Chinese are the best and that they are giving what they're handing out, what's basically a work of the gods to mm -hmm. uh, lesser civilizations. And for them to be humiliated like that towards other powers, it was such a culture shock to them that basically it switched. It turned off, it turned a switch on where they changed. They had to adapt. They had to change and change fast. And what happened to China is what led to other nations like Japan, most famous case being Japan, to advance itself to the point where it would not suffer the same fate. And then for Japan to be humiliated by that nation, by Japan as well, which was seen as a younger brother to China, in, in uh, my way of uh, interpreting it, it was seen as a greater insult. And uh, for them, they decided to advance even further so that they would, again, never again be humiliated like that. Because, mm -hmm. I mean, for, you know, basically it's the same instance of saying that uh, you were the biggest boxer in the ring, no one could take you out, and then somehow uh, a 150-pound a boy somehow took you down with a stone. Yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. How the heck does that happen? It, it just doesn't make sense to well, you. Well, what's, what's interesting is how this whole Middle Kingdom idea, this all-under-heaven idea, what's interesting about it, and I, and I think the same can be said of nationalism in general as a concept, is that it's a double-edged sword. Mm -hmm. Because on one hand, you know, so there's, there's a... I forget where I read this, um, but there was a quotation I found that I really liked that no country can survive being ruled by people who hate it, you know, and on one hand, nationalism and this sense of cultural and if you're an ethnostate, ethnic, you know, superiority can be something that drives you to achieve great things, you know, that it, it gives people a faith in the country, loyalty to the country. Uh, to overcome obstacles and to defeat enemies and, and to make all sorts of advancements. You, you know, the, the, a lot of the countries that have made the most advancements in areas like weapons and medicine and, and all these different things um, have been fairly nationalistic countries. But at the same time, in nationalism also can get a country into a sort of complacency. Um, right. And that what can happen. Prideful. Yes, and that and that you know, like I think the United States is going through this a little, or at least it was. I feel like we're waking up a bit now, but you know, the United States has been going through this for a long time. And China, one of the reasons why they isolated themselves was because of that. They thought that Chinese civilization had everything figured out, right? And that there was, you know, that there was there, that anything that was non-Chinese was inferior. Um, and that there was a lot of arrogance going on and that that was actually one of the reasons for the century of humiliation. Um, but it's, I, I think that brings up kind of an interesting point because you see there's sort of a cycle that happens that with, with, with this nationalism that, mm -hmm. you know, it, it gives China the willingness to be great, but it also causes them to be complacent and it leads to their downfall. 
Um, and it's very much in line with China's interpretation of history, that, that China historically has viewed history as something that moves in cycles rather than linearly. Like in, in, in Western countries, we view history as like a linear thing that we started as cavemen and now we're modern man and eventually we're going to be like futuristic ubermensch or, or, you know, or whatever it may be, whereas China, they see, see it as, as more cyclical. Um, but on the other hand, however, the Communist Party is unapologetically secular and atheistic. Um, and that, you know, eliminating religion and spiritual beliefs are, is one of the things that they believe is necessary to keep the government's hold on power because religion to them is just a, uh, a rival right. ideology. So with the mandate of heaven, um, to what extent, in your opinion, does that still influence Chinese society today? I mean, is that is that something that's still kind of held that maybe the Communist Party has used for propaganda purposes, even if it doesn't really believe in it? Um, or is it something that has been prohibited or, or downplayed because of the implicit assumption that there's heaven above China and, you know, the nature of the Communist Party to want to be viewed basically, if not in name, at least in the de facto sense, as God? Hmm. Let's see. Where do, where do I begin? Because I also have something else to mention. Uh, when it comes to the um, the difference between American and Chinese views, because the thing about Chinese civilization as well is that unlike American, where you could tell American is very much on the individual, the individuality, or what can the individual do, or very competitive in that respect. Uh, but the Chinese, on the other hand, with the mandate of heaven, they see themselves on the civilization level as a society as a culture not not necessarily a people per se mm. uh, even though they do follow i guess you could say ethnic type of thing but more like a culture and uh, i guess one way of putting it is best like this there was a book i was reading to prepare for my trip to china or no i'm sorry uh it was a book i was reading and it was called uh politics in china an introduction and in the book, it mentioned what the Communist Party saw the Chinese. And I believe it was Mao that said this. It was either that or one of the head, head members of the party. And what, he, what they said was really unique. What they said was, the Chinese people are a blank slate. Now, that depends on your interpretation. In my interpretation, that means that you can you put the Chinese to anything as a collective, as a society, give them a job, give them a principle, and they will follow it to the bitter end until it is proven that it is false or that it is faulty or it was led wrong. And in terms of the mandate of heaven, I guess this works fairly, I would say, does the mandate of heaven still work in this system? I would say very much so. I would say it does. And even in the beginning, the Communist Party had to follow the ideas of the Mandate of Heaven just so that they could be seen as a legitimate government in China. Mm -hmm. And what they did, uh, you can even look them up in various documentaries and, what, and even some of the Chinese films. Uh, whether in Hong Kong, Beijing, it depends on who you look and read 
I suggest do by all means. And what Mound did was that uh, what he did was he renovated the Forbidden Palace. Because here's the thing. The Forbidden Palace was seen as the seat of the emperors. That's where the king, the emperor, would always be. Now, uh, the Mandate of Heaven, for those that may not be familiar with this, I guess another way of putting it is calling it the divine right of kings. That something divine has anointed, anointed or chosen you to be the monarch of the realm. And as long as the realm prospered, you were seen as a legitimate ruler of China. However, if you had major droughts, wars, or a mixture of these things, including corruption, and that you as the ruler was making society fall apart, then society deems you as unworthy and that your mandate of heaven has been lost or taken away so that you, as that... Uh, illegitimate government needs to be overthrown and have one that is worthy to take place. And in terms of the Communist Party, what they did at the time was after the revolution that took out the last monarchy, uh, the palace had been left to ruin because at that time it was turned into a republic. However, uh, the founder of it, Sun Yat-sen, had passed away and then it went into civil war. And the Communist Party ended up winning through almost a gargantuan scenario. Like, it was almost impossible that the Communist Party could actually win. But through various lucky moves on the part of Mao and the party and of his enemies, they were able to succeed at taking over China. And when they did, uh, they decided to solidify their power to also quiet the opposition, and what they did was, uh, they would they re they renovated the Forbidden Palace to its pristine condition, and what they would say, they made a speech in front of the Forbidden Palace, signifying that we are the legitimate government, we have the mandate of heaven protecting us, we are the true government, and. As the true government and the government of the people, uh, the seat, the head of government will not be in the Forbidden Palace. However, we will build it right next to it. And that's how Tiananmen Square and uh, the People's Congress took place mm -hmm. to further legitimize their power, saying that the mandate of heaven is on our side. And yet... We are not going to be the previous monarchs of the past. We're not going to be those idiots that decided to hide behind the walls and live in luxury. We're going to be living amongst you as the people, as fellow man, and as fellow workers of the world. That we will unite and fight against imperialism, against the capitalists, or against any sort of opposition against the Chinese people. And... Mind you, Chinese communism is very different from what the Karl Marx or Stalin or uh, Ho Chi Minh or Lenin talked. It, it's a Mao's version. Maoism is very different. Mao's version of communism is very different. I think what it's called is um, 
they say something like socialism with Chinese characteristics. Yes. Um, and and that, it makes it really it makes a lot of sense on, on their part in terms of how they implement it because um, similar to how the Mongols had to ad adapt their strategy of ruling to the Chinese culture that because China's culture has had so many thousands of years to develop, you know, that, that people there have a certain mindset and a certain set of customs, a certain way of life, yep. and that to govern them effectively, you know, to govern the Chinese people effectively, you have um, to you, prove you, yourself. You, yeah, you have to prove yourself, and you can't go against the grain too much. That mm -hmm. if a system is too different and if it's incompatible with Chinese values, that there's an increased likelihood that, you know, you might not have that mandate of heaven in the eyes of the people there. Mm -hmm. um, so even even systems of government that are quite different from what China historically has had still will take on some, as I said, Chinese characteristics um, in order to be able to better fit with the culture. So based on your observations, like what are some of those Chinese characteristics? Like when we're talking about communism, you know, like with China, obviously, like one of them would be you know, sort of merging communism with more ancient Chinese narratives and, and, right. and cultural cultural tra traditions. And another thing, too, is I guess the, the place that the chairman um, of the Communist Party and, you know, various and the president and various other leaders have in the psyche of, of the Chinese people that it, they very much occupy the place of the emperor mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. Uh, but was there anything else that you picked up on? Maybe some things that were, were less about just the way the political structure was set up and more about uh, the day-to-day -day lives of Chinese people compared to what the day-to-day -day lives mm -hmm. of individuals in other communist regimes or other countries at all for that matter might be like. Uh, I would say this is one of those things where uh, if any if there was any country that communism could work the best in, China would be one of the best cultures for communism to ever work with, in my opinion. And the reason being is that Chinese society for thousands of years had always been a collective society where it was never really the individual, with the exception of the emperor uh, or the ruler of any sort. Uh, it was really based on civilization as a whole, as the culture. I guess the best way of putting it is if there, I'll put it like this, the difference between individualism and collectivism. And it's that in collectivism, it's if there's a problem that needs to be solved as, as a collective, we have the manpower, we have the resources that are pulled together. We're going to solve this problem. And it's going to be done. It doesn't matter how it's going to be done. It doesn't matter when it's going to be done. It's going to be done. End of story. It doesn't forget the details. It will be done. In the individual society, on the other hand, it's going to be smaller scale. It's going to be more specific. Uh, it's going to be more detailed depending on the environment of the time. And also, it would give multiple options to go with. So that would mean, in terms of competitiveness, not only would it be, could it be done the quickest, would it also be done the best way and possibly the most efficient way. So, but that really depends on your perspective between the two. And in terms of society, uh, there was one aspect that I thought was interesting. I was told this before I arrived in China. And it was, um, actually, no, actually it was two things. 
And one was towards uh, how you uh, confront people. You see, in the West, or yeah, for most of the West, if you were to point your finger, you know, you're just, you know, you're saying, you're, you're focusing on that specific person. In places like China, you shouldn't be doing that. That's rude. You should be instead uh, using your hand, almost as if like you're raising your hand towards him, like a sign of respect. You know, like uh, like you have the back of your hand facing towards the ground. However, the palm of your hand is kind of facing upwards as a sign of uh, respect. Or if you're trying to get that person's opinion, you are focusing towards him, but you're not necessarily pointing at him or singling him out. Uh, another interesting aspect, I don't know if you could say this is a piece of it, I, I do myself. Uh, I was told that in Chinese society, they had this interesting logic. It made sense. It's rather the method that doesn't work. And here's the example. Uh, I was told that before I arrived in China, before I witnessed it for myself, uh, in Chinese society, if you have toxins in your system, in your body, you need to get rid of them as soon as possible by any means necessary. You need to get rid of them. So for example, let's say you ate some bad food and you need to get them out of your system, like if you have indigestion. So you need to uh, do a number two immediately. In Chinese society, you have to do it immediately. The minute you have that feeling, you got to do it. And it's especially true towards the children, so that children will always be in their best condition so that they can grow up to be strong and healthy people. And what resulted in that was in places such as Beijing and the countryside especially, and I was able to witness this in some of the alleyways, what they would do was that if this situation happened, uh, the parents would uh, pull the pants down of the children and, or even some of the adults. I didn't see any of the adults. I did see children do it. And the children would take their pants off and uh, commit to a number two or number one. They would use the bathroom <laughs> in broad daylight oh in the streets. Now, mind you, as ridiculous as that sounds in the West, in the East, it makes sense to get rid of the toxins so that you don't end up keeping it in your system and being a problem later on. It's rather kind of the method and in response to this in China, uh, well, actually, this is the third piece, and this is probably the most important of the bunch, and it's reputation. Mm. And this is where I'm going to connect uh, number two, not joking about this part, although I kind of am, and, <laughs> it's the, good and the third joking. one, and what I just said, okay? This is what happened with Chinese society, because I've only saw this once or twice out of being there for a month. And what happened when I saw that happen, I was a little bit shocked. Um, but no, these are average day Chinese citizens. They're not homeless people or anything like that. They're not homeless. They're not on drugs or, or at least I don't think they're on drugs, but none of them are on that. It, it's drug, by the way, drugs are a big no, no over there. It's very strict. Um, oh shoot. Uh, where was I? Oh yes. I was connecting the second to the third that reputation is everything uh when china china was lately getting uh what's the right way of putting it criticisms from the western world from the developed world 
saying that this is unsanitary. This is unsanitary, it's unclean, it's nasty, you do that, it's smelly, you're going to bring diseases and all of that good stuff. So what the Chinese government did was that they made uh, public programs and set up cameras everywhere and punishments for those that would commit to these kind of acts, that would commit to these. Because naturally, if you were to, quote unquote, leave your mark in the streets, um, and for everyone to do it, uh, you could very well spread things like dysentery, typhus, you know, a, a variety of different diseases. And that would be seen as an insult to Chinese society. It would be seen as a blemish on their reputation because they, they believe themselves to be the highest of civilization. And for them to do something that would pass on sickness and for most of the world to see as part of a developing world, they find that as a great insult, so they try to fix that immediately. And so that's where we go to the third and most important aspect of Chinese society. And in some respects with politics as well. And it's reputation. Reputation is everything. Saving face is everything. They can't be insulted. You can't do anything that could insult people. And you have to treat them with the utmost respect. Now, it's not as common as what you would see in the West, except for maybe parts of Eastern Europe or the countryside of, um, of the United States and Canada or uh, Latin America. They're very specific when it comes to treating the elderly with high respect. And in terms of reputation, they can't let anything uh, uh, be a tarnish on them because if that does, it looks bad on them and they'll be seen as... Uh, not as civilized or lesser in social standing. Mm -hmm. So I hope I'm making sense here. Yeah, no, you you, you definitely are, and there, you know, there's there's certainly um, a lot to unpack. But one of the things I picked up on is it is it seems, in some ways, there is a little bit of tension between the social and political elements there. Because mm. so we were talking about with people kind of just relieving themselves to get out of out of the toxins. Um, and how that's something that's weird to Western countries, um, but in those Eastern cultures, it's normal. That that seems to indicate that there, that that sort of behavior that in Chinese culture is acceptable. You know that it, you want to get that out, whereas the government seems not to like it. You know, in part because of criticism from those Western countries. Um, so there's a little bit of tension, you know, between the social and political. There's something that's socially acceptable that the political regime just this does not want to tolerate um, and, I, and I think it's interesting because it really speaks to how autocratic China is um, I, because in a lot of countries you know particularly in democratic countries like the United States you know government is more or less shaped by culture um, whereas in China that isn't always the case that sometimes it can be sort of more independent yeah. see that's the issue uh, with China that that's what makes it an issue, but yet what makes it interesting, and when we refer to China, is mainland China. We're not talking about uh, the island of Formosa, Taiwan, that's the name of it, Macau, Hong Kong. Yeah, or, Hong Kong's all the rage these days. Singapore, yeah. or any Chinatown that you're going to find here in the major cities of the United States. Yeah. Okay, here's the reason why. We're going to put tariffs on Chinatown. It's going to be huge. It's going to be great. 
We're going to build the Great Wall just like the Great Wall of China. Believe me, it's going to be great. It's going to be bigger. It's going to be bigger by at least 100 feet. Uh, but all jokes aside, uh, before I lose track, uh, in Chinese history, when the communists took power, especially during the time of the Cultural Revolution and the Great Leap Forward, uh, Mao tried to change Chinese society. Uh, the problem with that was that it caused millions of deaths. It wasn't able to do the industrialization that he wanted. And many of the Chinese did not want to reject a lot of the culture. However, a lot of it was lost. And in a sense, the Communist Party kind of lost one of the ways that they could have retained power. It wasn't until the last 20 or so years, especially during Deng Xiaoping of the 1980s, that uh, old traditional Chinese culture started coming back, started being revived. Because mind you, a lot of the cult, old culture of mainland China has been wiped out. Whatever's left has either been revived, rediscovered, uh, excavated, or is rather a fabrication of what it used to be. So that's where, that's where you get the difference between Chinese society and the government itself. The government cherry picks certain parts of society that would benefit them best or what would seen as better for their reputation. While the Chinese people, they've grown up with that society for not centuries, for thousands of years. Mind you, that culture has existed since the time of Rome and ancient Greece. That is not something to get rid of just within less than six, within 60 years. That's impossible, or it's very much impossible. It's easier to just get rid of the culture and cherry pick pieces of it. Um, so if you want to find real traditional Chinese culture, you're better off going to places such as I stated before, uh, Taiwan, Hong Kong, uh, although that may be different in the next 20, 50 years. Uh, but again, what's happening in Hong Kong could very well change everything, who knows? Uh, Singapore is the same situation, and then you have the Chinatowns all over the United States, which are, in my in my understanding, some of the last remnants of traditional Chinese culture. Mm -hmm. So, um, is there anything else I'm missing? Um, I mean, not really with that specifically, um, but I think you know there are, there are some other things to talk about. So, one one thing I wanted to move into. So, we've been discussing sort of culture and uh, some of the general tendencies of, of China's civilization. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, some of the similarities and differences that exist between China and the United States, as well as how uh, the Chinese people view the world and how they operate and that kind of stuff. But um, when, it, when it comes to the government, because, you know, like what you were talking about with the, um, with the, the fact that Ch ancient Chinese culture has been largely erased in the mainland China, I think it really just goes to show how uh, supreme the authority of the government in that land is. You know, that it's not like I said, you know, kind of going back earlier, it's not like the US or Russia or Germany or, or Nigeria or something like that, where, you know, that, that there, there's the government sort of subject to the culture, you know, it's, it's kind of the other way around. Um, so just how authoritarian is China? I mean, because you hear a lot of different answers to this, that, you know, a, a lot of people, myself included, you know, that's sort of my argument will say, 
China is either a totalitarian regime or something close to it. Um, whereas on the other hand, you also have, you know, there's, there's some um, people who, you know, leftist, Marxist, whatever you want to call them, uh, who, who praise China and say that, no, you know, it's not, not quite like that. And then there's people on both sides, whether it be Marxists trying to excuse the human rights abuses or somebody else, you know, saying this for some other reason that, oh, you know, it wasn't real communism. You know, I'm sure <laughs> we're all familiar with that <laughs> argument, right? It wasn't real uh, communism. It never um, is. You know, but so, so that being said, like in the United States, I think there's a little bit of confusion, a little a bit of debate as to exactly you know, A, how authoritarian China is, and then B, what direction is it moving? Because right now, most people would say that, you know, whether people believe it's authoritarian or not, most people would say it's, it's moving in a more authoritarian direction, uh, in a more nationalistic direction under Xi Jinping. Uh, but, you know, that may, very well may change at some point. Um, so based on your travel, because I know you had talked about some stuff like with the surveillance and stuff over there, and we've already mm. talked about the government power, you know, just how authoritarian is, is China's government? Is it a totalitarian regime? Um, is it more free in that it's mainly Western propaganda that tries to make it seem like a totalitarian regime? Um, or is it something in between? Maybe it's an authoritarian regime, but it's not totalitarian like you know in, in the sense that we would think about that because remember totalitarian is the extreme that's like north korea the soviet union you know was china anything like that and, and if not what was it hmm. all right this is going to be a little bit hard to explain i guess you could say i'm somewhere in the camp of somewhere in the middle or possibly a little more authoritarian but let me try to explain it like I said, it's going to be a little hard to explain. Um, I guess the best way of putting it is something along the lines of... Uh, there was this article by Perry Link called The Anaconda and the Chandelier. Or The Anaconda in the Chandelier. And this article, what it mentions is basically the Chinese government acts like the anaconda that's on the chandelier... And everyone that walks into the hotel, like let's say for instance the Waldorf, one of the most famous hotels in the world, at least in the United, or at least in the Eastern Seaboard of the United States, in New York, I was able to go there one time. It, it, it's gorgeous. Oh, that's cool. It's very gorgeous. I was only there one time. Um, Waldorf. The Waldorf. Um, the Waldorf. Yeah, it was in New York. It was, <laughs> I'm sorry, it was very beautiful. No, the no, Dorf no, has the best wall, believe me. <laughs> uh, but the, what he tried to explain it here in this example is that, the, like I said before, the anaconda is in the chandelier. The chandelier is all nice. It's all nice and pretty. The, the anaconda is nicely hidden. And what happens is that anaconda, while it's in the chandelier, it's watching the people that are walking into the hotel, signing in, checking out, being with family, that sort of thing. Signing in, saying why it's why that person's there, who is that person, you know, what's their business, and what the anaconda does is that it really just minds its own business. It doesn't necessarily affect in people's society, unless the society has either taken notice of the anaconda, tries to get rid of it, or uh, it. The society or the people try to do things that the anaconda would seem see as unsatisfactory. 
or it takes as a threat. Therefore, the anaconda will act out in that regard. But everyone knows that the anaconda is there. So they have to be mindful of what they do, how they act, and what they say in order to prevent such an incident from happening. So that would be, I guess that would be the short answer mm -hmm. to what I could say for you, uh, to your question. Uh, if I had to be more towards uh, Xi Jinping, I would agree that it is becoming more authoritarian. And this is because Xi Jinping has been committing to a bunch of uh, anti-corruption campaigns. Now, on paper, that's that doesn't sound so bad, right? That yeah. doesn't sound so bad. Exactly. Who, who likes corruption? No one, No right? one likes corruption. However, here's the problem when you commit to corruption. And this is where one of those cases that um, I find this argument really interesting where corruption should kind of still exist in any government. Now, this is kind of weird in me saying this because obviously corruption's bad. However... Here's the thing, you all, every government needs a villain of some type, and one that you can easily beat. And committing to an anti-corruption campaign would work perfectly in this scenario. And that's what Xi Jinping has been doing. In these anti-corruption campaigns, he would go after people that are originally very corrupt uh, governors, uh, state officials, or various members of the Congress. And because of that, once he singles them out, the people love him and his popularity soars. And when that happens, the mandate of heaven is being protected. Mm -hmm. However, here's the kicker. And I believe this is in the Machiavelli. I believe it was in the writings of Niccolo Machiavelli in The Prince. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I've and read The Prince. I highly recommend it. I recommend it too. I love reading about Machiavelli. I guess you could say in some respects I'm a Machiavellian. Uh, Xi Jinping, he's, I guess, the living example of a Niccolo Machiavelli. So if you ever read The Prince, Xi Jinping is a pretty good living example of, him, of the prince. And what the prince teaches is that in order to be the strongest monarch or the strongest ruler, you have to be able to get rid of your opposition and to be feared rather than loved. But if you can be feared and loved, you're That's in the, the best. clear. You're in the gold. That is the bet. You're not yeah. just in the gold. You're the in main, the, the main The main reason why Machiavelli said it's better to be feared than loved is because, yeah, it's very difficult to be both because they're sort of, you know, at odds with each other, you know? But, but yeah, the, it, is, it is possible in some instances to be feared and loved and... Uh, you know, like carrots and sticks, they'll call yeah, it in international relations, that if you're able to, you know, on one hand, reward your allies, you know, that if they do something for you, that there's something um, in return that maybe you can build a cult of personality that um, gives people a, a favorable view of you, like that sort of thing, you know, but at the same time, make sure that, you know, anybody who crosses you is severely punished and, and instill yep. fear that way. You know, that's ultimate security. And really, and really, when you think about, you know, rulers who have been super successful, like people who, you know, they've, they've, they've ruled, had very long reigns and that, you know, in the face of foreign adversaries and domestic incursions, they never were dethroned. A lot of times it's because they were able to strike that rare balance of being both feared and loved at the same time. But when it comes to totalitarianism, um, 
so so based on what you're saying, because obviously there's different interpretations, and I have my own opinions and stuff, but but it sounds like China is maybe less totalitarian in the hands-on sense and, and more like a surveillance state. Like I think in another mm-hmm. conversation that we had, we had talked about, uh, with another conversation we had, um, Nicholas, you, you compared it to, you had said it was like a real life 1984. Yes. So, so maybe it's not so much that the, that the government is like, you know, everything's banned and that the government must directly regulate every facet of human activity. Um, but rather that they have a massive surveillance apparatus and that there's, there's no privacy and that lack of privacy allows all sorts of government abuses um, and prevents any kind of checks against um, efforts by the government to infringe upon human mm-hmm. rights or to consolidate power yep. um, or that uh, also, sort of thing. Yep. It also gives the perception that you're free to do whatever. You're free to do a lot of things. As long as you're not doing anything that would either incite violence, overthrow the government, or see the government as illegitimate in any regard. Or basically anything that could uh, destroy the, I guess the best way of putting it would be destroying any sense of the mandate of heaven is forbidden. Basically, that's what it would be. Other than that, naturally they're going to watch for what you do uh, so that uh, you don't... That way, you'll never you should you won't be making that kind of mistake. And if you do, they know where to find you. And it's funny how in communist countries, the the whole charge of conspiracy to overthrow the government is very vague and can be taken very far mm-hmm. um, in a lot of instances. Yes. And that's and that's one of the things that's actually pretty interesting about China and a lot of communist countries, for that matter, is that there's a lot of rights and protections on paper, but, not, but there's almost none in practice. Because mm-hmm. their constitution, for example, guarantees all sorts of different rights. But here's the kicker, that only applies to people who are not enemies of the state, and the state gets to decide who is an enemy of the state, and enemies of the state don't get those rights. So a lot of times if you're accused of a crime, you don't have due process because by that point, you're considered an enemy of the state, and right. usually to avoid becoming that, would involve, you know, not having been accused of anything to begin with. Mm-hmm. And uh, back to the anti-corruption campaigns. This is part of the reason why I think that even though he's a Machiavelli, uh, Xi Jinping being a Machiavelli, uh, in terms of principle, the problem with it is that I guess you could say he's too much of a Machiavelli. He's too much of one. And here's my reason. Here's my reason being. Remember what I said about the anti-corruption campaigns and that it's good on paper, but according to Machiavelli, what happens when you do it too much? Mm-hmm. If you do it too much, well then, here's the situation. You either start scaring your former allies into enemies, and they end up trying to take you down later on, therefore you're making more enemies, or... You eliminated all your enemies, you have no one else to go after, and you've lost the ability to keep the population on your side and always supporting you. And that's the problem that Xi Jinping is about is starting to face. He has gotten rid of the anti-corruption, which was great in the beginning, in many respects. The problem here is he's running out of opposition. And the only opposition, the only possible opposition, for the most part, are his former allies. Mm-hmm. And if he starts doing that, which it seems like he's going to, 
it might actually come back to bite him. Actually, there was a case that I heard involving Chinese people, either from China or outside of China and places like Canada, where a lot of them will go to in terms of finances, which will be something interesting to mention later on. Um, that there seems to be a bit of a struggle within the party, a, a sort of civil war in a sense, between the hardliners under Xi Jinping and the more soft people, uh, the more moderates. There seems to be a type of conflict between them because what Xi Jinping seems to be doing is oddly reminiscent of Mao Zedong, which Mao Zedong in, in more English terms. And here's the issue when you start, here's a weird part about, here's an interesting fact about Xi Jinping. His father used to be an important figure in the Communist Party when Mao was in power, or rather when he took power. And Mao later on decided to get rid of his, get rid of Xi Jinping's father, either for being, I believe it was for being too moderate, because he was seen as a counter-revolutionary. So his father was uh, put in the jail and gone through a lot of things. And Xi Jinping had to live through that kind of life. And as he took power, he ended up making the same moves as Mao Zedong has done, or rather has done moves that Mao Zedong would have done in that respective time period. Mm -hmm. And so earlier I mentioned about the finances or people of other uh, countries. There was this person I knew uh, just uh, near a van that was from that came from Vancouver, Vancouver, Canada, where in British Columbia there's a lot of Chinese people. Most of them are either dissidents or uh, refugees or even members of the elites, members of the high class in uh, China, the billionaires, millionaires, you know, whatever. Uh, they have this interesting trick, and this is why a lot of the elites will go to places such as the United States, Canada, or Switzerland. It's for the banks, mm -hmm. or the Virgin Islands, or the Turkmen Island. You know, all of these different yeah. uh, uh, safe money holding places. Yeah, Ameri Americans do the same thing. You know, you you can avoid the tax laws and the regulations, whatever your mm -hmm. country, whether your country be the U.S. or China, ah. by by stuffing that money in Swiss bank accounts but and all that kind of stuff. Here's the issue. Here's the issue, though. It's not the tax laws that's the problem with China. China has this interesting scenario where the elites would mention this. If you ever come across them or become friends with them or anything of the like, or at least this is my knowledge according to this one person. According to, not actually not just this one, but several. And it's that uh, China, you really don't, you shouldn't trust Chinese banks because they're completely state run. And if the banks fail, well, you won't be able to get your money back. That's where US laws have the instance where they have that law that states you need about 20% of all, all of the money that you have, you need about anywhere from 10 to 20% in reserve in case uh, an economic depression happens so that your bank won't run and then eventually close. In the Chinese banks, they don't have that. It's completely run by the Chinese government. And if the government sees you as corrupt or sees you as anti-China, anti-Chinese society, or when that social credit system, which will be mentioned a little bit later, will come into play, 
they could very well confiscate your finances. And that's why a lot of the elites or people that have saved money over the generations, which is a very good characteristic of the Chinese people. They are very good savers. Some of the best you're ever going to find in terms of mm -hmm. saving, which I kind of learned when it came to Chinese, uh, using Chinese currency. Really an interesting uh, experience uh, to do. Uh, but anyway, what the Chinese people would do was that once they saved up money, they would, and if they have the ability to, they're going to go and put their money either in Canadian, American, Swiss, or the various Caribbean islands I just mentioned into their into those banks because it won't be tracked. It'll be protected under different laws. So the Chinese government will never reach them. So that they will always have that money with them so that by the time they reach their 40s, 50s, or 60s, or even several generations down the line, they can live like millionaires at the end of the day. And that... Also, uh, I've, I've, I remember talking to this one person in China. I was talking about how money works in China. And I said, well, money talks, especially in China. And what he told me was, Doesn't that, isn't that with every country money talks? And I said, let me rephrase this. Where the rest of the world money talks in China, money screams with a megaphone. Money does not talk. It screams in China. If you have money, even in broad daylight, you can get away with a lot of things. As long as you have that money. In places like certain parts of the United States, or, or no, I'll just use a better example. With dirty cops. Okay, with dirty cops, whether it's in the U.S. or any country. All you have to do is just slide a couple hundred bills. You're good to go. It'll be all silent. Hush, hush. But in China, slide in a couple hundred U.S. dollars worth or even a few thousand. And they're just going to pretend like they never saw it. And this is in broad daylight with crowds. You won't be charged. You'll be just fine. That's mm -hmm. just how it works. That's just how it works. Because in some respects, uh, what this person told me is that, well, that's bribery. Well, in most countries, yes. But in China, it's not seen as a bribery. It's seen as you're using whatever resources you have necessary to be able to move yourself up to a higher position in life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. And I, I know in my, um, that, that's not something that's unique to China either, because in my modern politics of Southeast Asia class that I took a couple semesters ago, um, they were talking about how that's common in a lot of Asian countries, you know, mm -hmm. Vietnam, Cambodia, like heck, you know, in Thailand, oh, Thailand, we, especially Thailand, we actually had a speaker who came in and visited and was talking about how, you know, you have open air markets selling military grade weaponry. You oh, can yeah. go and you can buy an AK 47 if you want one oh, full yeah. auto, yeah. everything, you know, it's a, it's a gun owner's dream yeah. come true. And you it's, it's technically, it's t yeah, you give it RPG, whatever it may be. Oh no, not just that. You could go anywhere from an RPG to rare fossils to, uh, to yeah, even dude, women. You're right, like, dude. You could do anything. You're right. Like weapons are the beginning, not the end. Given me being a gun guy, weapons are what I'm in. <laughs> I'm interested in. 
don't you know, you. like I don't, you know, there's there's some stuff that's like too unethical for me, like you know, like with the human trafficking, I want to stay away from that. Yeah. But you know, I'm I'm down, I'm down for some full auto guns, man. But the thing is that like, what's crazy is that all that stuff we just talked about, the guns, the the fossils, the the women, you know, exotic animals, whatever it may be, you, you know, a lot of that stuff is illegal. How, you know, the guns are definitely illegal and so is the human trafficking to a lesser extent. Weird thing, right? But, you know, we live in an anti-gun culture in a lot of parts of the world and that, you know, you can get more time in prison sometimes for gun or drug offenses and for raping somebody. It's a really fucked up world. But anyway, uh, that's kind of a social policy tangent I'm not going to go on. Um, but that being said, like a lot of this stuff, regardless of what category it may fall into, uh, is uh, is technically illegal, and yet people get away with it because they bribe the police in Thailand. You give them some money, and they're like, "Oh, that AK-47 you have, oh, it doesn't exist. I don't see it anymore." But you know, that, that's probably the point. Yeah, you know, like in, in the like the more money you give them, it slowly starts to disappear. Like, so maybe you give them a little bit, but it's not enough, and like I still see it, and you give them some more, it's like, "Oh, now I don't." You know, exactly. <laughs> like that that kind of thing. And yeah. so so with China. You know, so, so with China, because I know China obviously is a lot more authoritarian even than Thailand. Yeah. So how much of that did you actually see in China? Like, are are laws enforced? Is it really that corrupt that provided you have enough money to bribe people, you can actually yeah. have a degree of freedom in China? Um, or is it a little bit different? Maybe does it does it maybe not go quite as far as it would in some other countries? Uh, and and does the Chinese government still? prevent bribery and corruption to a sufficient extent to prevent people from being able to live lives freely and and resist the government uh, in sort of their personal decisions as to like you know what sort of books and weapons to buy and that mm -hmm. kind of thing okay now this would be somewhat challenging because when i was there it was always with a group and i wasn't necessarily familiar with the area so i couldn't always spot certain things however i would hear them on the grapevine so to speak Mm. And uh, such illegal markets do exist. They definitely exist. I know they exist. I don't know where they are, but I know that they exist. I know people who have been there. I've even seen images of them. Oh, I don't wow. have the images, but I know. I have seen them. And I've even seen some of the pieces that they bought. Uh, and various items that I'm not going to mention for various reasons, either because that's going to be too much of a wow factor, or it may not even be seen as a, that important, or they might not even be real. It, it could be all fake. Well, actually, I'm, I'm sort of curious. Give us an example. You don't have to say everything, but, you know, because obviously, like, with Thailand, it was mostly guns and, and, yeah, and yeah, stuff yeah. like that, but but what are, what are some of the things that you, you heard about or saw that people would be able to buy in these markets provided that they were able to bribe the police if they got caught. Hmm. I guess I would mention some of the lower tier, lower types. Uh, anything from uh, copper made things that were done during the Cultural Revolution, you know, like uh, communist pins or various hats that were made at the time or, uh, or hairpins. Mm -hmm. uh, hairpins had like jade or various gems on it. You know, it could depend whether those were fake or real, because there are no authentication, authentic, authenticity papers to say that it's real. You know, there are those kind of hidden markets, mm -hmm. and I mean, you can find them all over the world. 
It's just that in China, you have to know some people to be able to know where it is. And in terms of corruption and bribery, like I said before, in China, it's not seen as bribery. Or in some respects, it, it may not even be considered as bribery. I'd rather, well, I don't know if I, I would still kind of call it bribery, but in a way. It depends on the interpretation. I would also say that Chinese society, oddly enough, even though it is more autocratic, more authoritarian, oddly enough, it's strangely more capitalistic, which doesn't seem to make sense. But like I said before, money doesn't talk in China. Money screams. Money does everything. So like what I've heard is that it's – and what I've read is that with China, it's – because capitalism can be authoritarian. You know? It and can like That's be. the thing people don't really – like people I think conflate capitalism with free markets. And while the things do go hand in hand, like you know, free market capitalism is a type be, of capitalism. Yeah, it would be easier. It's not the only type of capitalism. And I think case in point is you know, mercantilism, that China's economic system – is a mercantilist system. It is, it is designed to do a couple of things, you know, mainly boost exports um, and also to grow China's economy, but not just grow China's economy, but grow, grow China's economy at the expense of its enemies, you know, mm -hmm. that really to engage in economic uh, arrangements that hurt, for example, the United States um, and help China. You know, mm -hmm. so... so like, In that regard, I would... Under that interpretation, I would say probably out of all of the different economic systems that we could have talked about, which would be quite extensive, I would say mercantilism under that interpretation would probably be the best, uh, would probably be the most accurate interpretation of what I witnessed in China. Yeah, now, mind you, it's not a common thing that I saw. Mind you, I went to places that foreigners were allowed to go to yeah. or that there were tour guides in those areas. Yeah, and that is something that China is very good at is portraying themselves differently to foreigners than to domestic audiences. Mm -hmm. um, Although it's oh, – I'm sorry. Uh, I just I have to intervene in on this little bit, little detail because I was in the capital. I was in Beijing where foreigners from all over the world would go to. So I guess that's another way where it wasn't exactly as common unless you were to go to cities like in the south, like Hong Kong, Macau. Macau's being the, the gambling capital of the world, basically. Guangzhou, which is nearby. Hanzhou and uh, Shanghai, which are Shanghai being in the center. And then you have other cities in and around, around Beijing. So, but mm -hmm. Beijing being the capital and where most of the foreigners would go to, with the exception of Shanghai and Hong Kong, uh, I would say it's probably not as common to see that unless you're in the upper echelons of society. Mm -hmm. So unless you're the more well-to-do or Beijing citizens, because they even have rules when it comes to being in Beijing itself, whether you're a foreigner or a Chinese citizen. And then it would depend on, are you from someone outside of Beijing or are you a citizen of Beijing itself? Like there are various rules, anything from uh, how you, what, what property you live in, how long you have that property, who you talk to, and also what, uh, when, uh, what day and what time you drive a car. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, like the controlled traffic and everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, because I know it definitely yeah. gets crazy over there with the population density that they have. Um, but I guess, because so we've been going on for about an hour, give or take, I think. Um, and, you know, to keep this a reasonable length, I think it's probably going to be wrap it up soon. Um, so the note I want to end on is a foreign policy note because one of the reasons why we talk about China so much and we're so interested in China is that at the end of the day we're Americans um, and we want to see America succeed and that you mm-hmm. have to you have to understand your enemy uh, in order to defeat them you know it's like Sun Tzu said you know the Chinese general Sun Tzu that uh, if you, you know if you know your enemy in yourself you need not fear the result of a hundred mm-hmm. battles um, and if you, you know yourself but not the enemy, for every victory you'll have a defeat. And if you know neither your enemy nor yourself, you're just going to get defeated. And uh, so with, with, with that, kind of on a foreign policy note, and, and I'll, I'll, I'm almost done. I just want to you know, propose this, this one last question. Um, with, with China, when you're looking at, so kind of summing up everything you said, looking at the culture, looking at some of the pros and cons, looking at the economic wealth, because... Uh, that is actually one thing that maybe you could talk about a little bit in this last part is whether China is really a developing country or if they're truly developed because they have more foreign currency reserves uh, than the rest of the world combined. They're the richest country in the world. Um, and so with, with China, sort of based on your assessment, some of the social dynamics, economic dynamics, um, does China, is China as strong as it seems or does it have a lot of internal problems? You know, are, are we living in the Chinese century or at least do we have the potential to be if the United States doesn't um, play its cards right? Um, or are China's internal problems going to pose so much of a challenge that maybe it's difficult to say that, you know, without waiting and seeing what, what occurs? Potential. Potential. Um, I would say China... When it comes to the coastlines, it is, for the most part, developed. It's when you go further inland that a lot, and where majority of the pop, a lot of the population is, and especially when you go to places such as the minorities, which I have read many articles on, talked to various professors that have been to these areas, various areas, have been to these areas, gotten souvenirs from them. Heck, I even got one souvenir. Uh, that was from one of the uh, outer areas of Beijing. And uh, over there, it's not as developed or or it's in this stage of development, like somewhere in the mid-stage. Uh, but for the coastlines, it's very much developed. If anything, it's as developed as uh, parts of Europe and the U.S. I'm not going to say it's a space-age scenario. Although I do admit, when it comes to their... Uh, transactions with currency they're trying to go full on digital they're trying to do digital with their uh, WeChat pay which is their version which WeChat is their version of Facebook and it has proven to be quite successful and part of the reason why they're doing it digitally is so that um, once you have the social credit system that's going to come in it's going to be a lot more easy to uh, quote-unquote liquidated yeah and the thing that's interesting about the whole development situation is that it really depends how you define it because there's different components of development and furthermore there's different outlooks on it so like for example western countries traditionally 
have viewed the you know whether a country is developed based on GDP per capita, and in that regard, China is still developing in the sense they have a low GDP per capita. Um, but when you look at like you mentioned, like the sort of the Star Trek type scenario, and that's a description I sort of use for their skyline of uh, some of their cities. That it seems like you know with China, when it comes to their infrastructure, when it comes to their architecture, when it comes to their use of certain technologies, things like robots and computerization in everyday life, um, that they're very far ahead of the rest of the world. The rest of the world. Um, you know, with the potential exception of maybe Japan and stuff like that, and even then it's kind of contentious. Um, but maybe in other areas, you know, besides those, so if you're less, you know, you focus less on robots and tall buildings and stuff, and maybe more on, you know, access to certain utilities, mm -hmm. you know, that in, the, in that regard they may be less developed and that um, even though they have a wealthier society in general in terms of the amount of resources the government controls, and even though they have you know, more infrastructure and more modern conveniences yeah. that they still have that low GDP per capita. Yeah, I would say, I guess I would say my verdict on whether they're developing or not. I would say they're developing, however, they're slowing down. They're becoming more and more service industry, which according to various uh, analysts that would try to do that, uh, you know, do studies of that kind of civil, of nations, uh, what happens is that after heavy industry and they become industrialized and developed, their developing their develop rates or growth rate rather starts to shrink and it starts to stabilize and that's when they that's this is also about the time when they start becoming more service based industries. So ch what China's trying to do is trying to do a mixture of both. Where it's still developing, however, it's taking advantage of the of the benefits that uh, the service industry could provide. Yeah, and, and a lot of it has to do with China's overall economic grand strategy because the kind of going back to the mercantilism point. One of the reasons why China takes that mercantilist approach is because for them, you know, in the long term, they have their sights set on military conquest. You know, they want to take back Taiwan. Um, who knows what's going to happen with high well, Hong Kong, they have these territorial claims in the South China Sea, you know, that they are, they're an empire, they're already an economic empire, and that, you know, they may not be as militaristic now as they could be, but that's more because they're biding their time, and that they want to wait, you know, until they have more strength um, before they fight. They don't want, you know, unlike the United States, which will kind of go to wars because a corporation said mm -hmm. so, that they, they don't want to fight unless they know they can win. Um, and, that, and that being said, because they have very militaristic and imperialist mindset, they're focused on self-sufficiency. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, in the West, one of the reasons why the West is so pro-free trade is because it builds interconnectedness. It's, it's, it's more difficult to go to war with a country if you depend on that country and on the international community to be able to do things mm -hmm. and that both industry and service sector um, is important to a country's overall economy. You know, you can't thrive on one or the other, but they're both essential for overall a, a healthy economic system. And that, you know, one of China's biggest fears, particularly when it comes um, to, you know, 
prospects of military conquest in the future, but even if they never get to that point, when you're talking about human rights abuses, when you're talking about economic colonialism, when you're talking about even the general mindset that's been created in their civilization as a result of past colonization, you know, they don't want to be reliant on other members of the international community for anything. Um, you know, that not only do they want to build an empire with tribute states, tributary states where they can extract trade surpluses and that kind of thing, but they don't want to need anybody. You know, if the government feels like if China needs people besides China to survive, that, um, that there's a problem, you know, and I, and I think with the, like what you were talking about, that's one of the reasons why they're trying to get the best of both, because, mm -hmm. you know, like, like that's with China's mercantilism, like what they've been really good at that a lot of other countries have been unable to do is to keep their industry while they still transition to a service sector. Because a lot of countries have, that used to be industrialized, they've they gone, they became, what happened is they went post-industrial and they weakened, you know, they, they turned back, you know, a post-industrial economy I'm sorry, it's, it's just an agricultural or in some extreme cases, maybe even Stone Age economy that is masquerading as a modern economy due to wares that are furnished to it by industrialized powers. You know, that, that industry really is how you make the building blocks of your society. Manufact not, not, not manufacturing, service is just what allows you to more effectively manage the output of that industry. Yeah, and, and, that, you know, and that's the thing, and that, that China seems to have a realization that a lot of Western countries don't have, or if they have it, they, they don't want to act on it because they don't want to be seen as imperialist or whatever it is. Right. That, or it that, could bite them in the butt. Yeah, that they have a realization that both industry and service are essential to the to the mm -hmm. economy. Um, and that not only do you have the self-sufficiency question, but even if China decided that they didn't want to focus on self-sufficiency anymore, you know, that even if you're just looking at it from a perspective of GDP growth rates, that you know, diversity of the workforce and, and different skills and, you know, just there's all sorts of things that are affected by your balance of, of manufacturing and industry and service sector jobs and that, you know, usually if a country doesn't have both, they're not in as strong a position as they could be. Mm. I also wanted to mention, uh, I guess one of the things that I noticed interest that was interesting, besides the cameras, besides the cameras, they were freaking everywhere so many cameras so many cameras look you know what i'm gonna mention the cameras uh where i'm from i'm from the country i grew up on a ranch uh if i were to go to a small town and go to the intersection i'm probably going to see about anywhere from two to four cameras you know nothing too too major and they're they're decently modern if i were to go to a city like austin or houston i'm probably going to see about half a dozen to maybe maybe eight max in the more busy sections. If I were to go to Washington, D.C., I'm going to see about a dozen, may at most 20. But that's, but by this point, we're talking about armed guards, policemen, the security detail of the museums, and the White House. Because that's the seat yeah. of government. Yeah, exactly. The police state. Exactly. The, the police district. Uh, and then we've reached China where if you were to just go to one of the districts, you're probably going to see easy, easy, in one intersection alone, you're going to see about a dozen to 20. Basically something similar to slightly, I would say just below what Washington, D.C. would look like because there's less security detail. 
there are the cameras are there, just not as much security. Yeah. If you go to the business districts, you're going to see more business security, almost equal. And then when you get to places such as uh, Tiananmen Square, the mausoleum where Mao Zedong's body is encased, or the People's Congress, or the Forbidden Palace, which I was able to, uh, I was at Tiananmen Square, so I was able to take pictures of the mausoleum, the uh, various museums in the area, and uh, Tiananmen Square itself, with you know, with the famous picture of Mao. Yeah. And the People's Congress just nearby. Tiananmen Square, where absolutely nothing bad ever happened, according to the about? Chinese government. What are you talking about? What are you talking about? Nothing happened there. Yeah, no, no tanks, no tanks, no protests. You know, mean? those were just armored vehicles. Yeah, they're just armored vehicles that were there. It was for, just a bunch of rednecks. Yeah, a bunch of for, for that the United States sent over using yeah. the capitalist money. But uh, you but, know, uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, and over there. On one lamppost. One lamppost. One lamppost. Out of, out of every two or three per each side of the intersection, for one lamppost, you're going to see about a dozen. Or ten. Ten to a dozen wow. per lamppost. And there are one or two lampposts per corner of the intersection. And we're not even talking about the cameras that are in the middle of the intersection through wires. And I saw the, the picture you showed me of the church with all the cameras at the church and, and stuff like that. So definitely, it definitely is. a surveillance state, definitely mm -hmm. very authoritarian. That's, and remember, that's hence the anaconda in the, in the chandelier. Exactly. And, and, I, and uh, I think that from, from an American perspective, I think in a lot of ways, it's very, it's, unsettling. It's, it's very unsettling, especially when you consider how much control China yeah. historically has I had mean, in our political yeah. system. How authoritarian the direction that we're mm -hmm. moving is with, with gun control, yeah. with mass surveillance, with Islamophobia can, and stuff yeah. like that. I can somewhat understand them doing it in places like the Metro or various parts of the museum. I can somewhat understand them because, mind you, those are going to be places where a lot of people would go to. So it would be a perfect place for terrorist attacks to occur. Well, I mean, I understand so like it kind of makes yeah. sense. Well, I understand however, anytime there's like however, high security areas. Yeah, you know? However, I would say it's excessive it's overly excessive and very unsettling yeah to see that many exactly even though i know that the city is massive and uh, a lot of people go through this section still it's way too much yeah and the metros i mean i could somewhat forgive them in that regard uh but still there's still a lot yeah and if also i would say probably one of my closing pieces involving china is that oddly enough when you mentioned uh sometimes the best one of the best ways to defeat your enemy is to become or think like your enemy in order to defeat them apparent what's weird about chinese society or especially with the public is that oddly enough um some weird things have been happening and, and the easiest example would be their clothing because remember what i said about chinese society traditional Chinese culture being mostly wiped out. Oddly enough, in the last 20 or so years, uh, semi-traditional Chinese outfits have been coming back. Wow. Like, the, you know, like, if you were to watch various Chinese dramas or movies, and they're going to represent certain dynasties, like the Tang, the Qing, or uh, the Han dynasties, which were the highlights 
of Chinese society, especially the Tang. The Tang dynasty is the most famous of the bunch that they use in the films. Uh, but because the Chinese, that culture was predominantly wiped out, the only things that were remaining were some of the paintings or some recollection of what some of these outfits looked like. So they tried to recreate it. And when I was there, almost every two or three days, I would see about one to three, yeah, basically about once a day, I would see one or two girls wearing something that looks like a traditional dress or something akin to one. And these girls are typically in their, what appears to be teens, maybe late teens, at most early 20s, give or take. And then what's more common is that for the girls that are, or rather everybody, uh, but it's more noticeable with the women because women have more uh, fashion choices, more fashion choices compared to men. But, uh, but that's with all societies even in the United States. And also, uh, also according to SJWs, I'm a sexist, mis, uh, cisgendered, pale Hispanic. <laughs> that is not Catholic. It is non-denominational. So, uh, yeah. Uh, but all, all political jokes aside, in terms of culture, they oddly dress like Americans. They oddly dress like Americans. Now, some people that come to the U.S. or even other Americans, they'll say that uh, some of the American people, they'll sometimes dress kind of slutty, kind of like whores in some cases. Uh, but in China, I guess the best example would be what men and women wore back in the 90s and early 2000s. Mm -hmm. So you do have something akin to booty shorts, but not booty, booty, booty shorts that you're going to find <laughs> here in the States. Like, you're not going to be yeah. seeing a butt cheek there. Nah, you, you know, you're I not going to see that. You can definitely tell Styles no. Manning in the United States or, or no. something else. No, no, but no, 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 no. You're going to see something that's yeah. like a third down the thigh. Yeah. Like, if you have the thigh and then you separate it into three categories, you got the first third. And then that's about as short as I've seen them come. And then the shirts, I have seen some where they're kind of like V-necks, where it's actually very possible that, uh, for me as an American, I'm fairly, as an American, as a Westerner, I am considered, even though I'm of average height, in China, I'm above average. Mm -hmm. It's And as a foreigner, it's very unusual for Chinese people to see that. But in Beijing, it's kind of the exception because foreigners are always there. So I'm easily about three, two to four inches taller than mo than the average Chinese person. Yeah. So for me, I can see a lot more people and what they dress, I could see things such as, you know, crop tops or really short sleeves or even in the rare cases, I can see them wear something akin to V-necks. Uh, v yeah. So I can see various things, uh, including those booty shorts. And sometimes I would see them wear high heels or wear outfits that you would see in, uh, like if you were to go to high-class uh, weddings or parties. Exactly. Yeah, but uh, with that being said, you know, that uh, I think that's a good overall, you know, characterization. There, there's a lot that we discussed, and, uh, you know, it's important to understand other cultures because really it's, it's about being able to comprehend and understand the world, especially in the context of the fact that China 
presents an alternative to other countries like the U.S. and Russia when it comes to world order. Uh, and going back to the Venezuela joke that you know we, we kind of made at the beginning of this podcast that with China backing Nicolas Maduro that you know was clear is that one of their main exports is not just goods and services it's authoritarianism. Um, and that China has has really come onto the world stage in a big way, and however you feel about that, whether you're some pro-China corporatist or some anti-China American patriot, it's important that we understand that and that we dispel some of the misconceptions and that we we really understand who and what we're dealing with when it comes to the Chinese government, to the Chinese people, to the Chinese culture. Um, you know, it's, it's really difficult to talk about a civilization that has, you know, three, four thousand year history in, yeah. in a one hour and 30 minute podcast, you know, and we're definitely going to be doing more as this goes along. But, you know, considering that we just had a member of the Wisdom Factory in China, you know, I figured we'd make the most of it. And I definitely think we did. And I hope you learned a lot from this podcast. We certainly enjoyed the conversation. I learned a lot. Um, from talking to Nick about his experiences in China. And, uh, you know, yeah. Uh, and also, last thing, uh, you know, shout out to all the people in Hong Kong um, who are fighting for their freedom and, and fighting for a better future and for a better China. Uh, you know, same for the people in Taiwan and for the Uyghur minority who's currently being oppressed by the, the Chinese Communist Party. And that, you know, we, we, as the Wisdom Factory, we wish all of them the best of luck in forging a better future for themselves, for the country of China, and for the world. Um, <clears throat> because however you think of things right now, things could always be better. And we, we definitely want to aim, yeah. for the, the aim for the moon when we are setting our goals. So with that being said, um, we're going to have to bid you all farewell mm -hmm. uh, to wisdom, virtue, and victory. Oh, and also, if you eat Chinese food in China, uh, be very wary of spicy, because their idea of spicy, uh, you become a dragon and you start breathing fire, unlike Mexican spicy. Oh, know? for sure. Yeah, it gets spicy over there quick. I love Chinese food. But yeah, mm -hmm. wisdom, virtue, and victory. Hope everyone enjoyed this podcast. Y'all have a good one.